0: Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open it up to Jude. Jude chapter 1, verse 14 and 16 is going to be the verse that we'll be studying this morning. Uh, but before that, I would like to read through the entire verse one to the text this morning, so it can give us some context and remind ourselves of what we've gone through so far. So, you would read or, come, or follow along with me as I read, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept an eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the, the punishment of eternal fire in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties but michael the archangel when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of moses did not dare pronounce pronounce against him a railing judgment but said the lord rebuke you But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you, without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, Carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the blackness has been reserved forever. Verse 14, it has been about these men that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgments upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for, for the sake of gaining an advantage." Lord, be with us this morning as we look to your word. We want to be a faithful evangelist, a bold evangelist, but we want to be also faithful in the way that we live so that the gospel that we preach will not be hindered. Be with us now in your son's name. Amen. One of the greatest literature that has ever been written by a Chinese man that many Chinese people in China are proud of is a book called The Art of War. The Art of War by Sun Tzu. This book was way ahead of its time. This book was insightful and profound because of of all the war tactics and principles that Sun Tzu observed during his time in the military. This book was written in the fifth century BC, but the principles about war can still be applied today. In fact, it is still used today I heard that many people, when they join the military, they're given a free copy of this book so they can understand the the art of war. The art of war, this book, is divided up to 13 chapters. Each chapter talks about a specific aspect of war, how to mobilize your people, how to use the resources, how to attack the enemy. And most, if not all, can still be applied to modern warfare and espionage. And one of the coolest lines in the book, to me, is found in chapter 13 regarding spies. Tzu writes, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a thousand battles. If you know yourself and not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle." The idea is that during war, if you know yourself and you know the enemy, you have more information for you to win the war. If you don't know the enemy and you only know yourself, then there's only a limited amount of success because you know what you are capable of. But if you know the enemy and know what they're capable of and know yourself and what you're capable of and what your army is capable of, then you know when to attack and when to retreat. The more information you know about yourself and the enemy, the more successful you will be in war. Is a key principle of war, information. The more information that you know, the higher chances you'll have to win because of the advantage you have of what you know of them. And as Christians, we understand that we are in a truth war. We need to know both who we are and who we are up against. We need to know our strength and know what the enemy's strengths are so that we are able to combat them, so that we can reason with them, so that hopefully we can sway them to truth. And also so that we ourselves will not be swayed into apostasy. We need to know our role as Christians and the devil's attack. And when we understand our responsibility as Christians, we will not be shaken when a false teacher tries to sway us with a new doctrine. This is the fifth of our sixth sermon throughout this series of June, and we're reaching the end of this epistle we're reaching the end of the description of all of these false teachers. This is the final illustration that Jude will use to help us be more equipped to go against false teachers. This portion is the last portion where he will not only give us instructions to the church about false teachers, but also talking about these false teachers as well. Jude knows who they are, and this is the last attempt that he's writing to, to sway and to convince these false teachers to repent. Yet before Jude concludes his portion on false teacher, he reminds us of the task that we have. We as Christians, we're all evangelists. When the moment you came to know the Lord, you are a herald of truth. And Jude not only wants to give us an illustration of false teachers, but also a faithful evangelist. Jude uses this man named Enoch, and he'll use him to illustrate what we all need to be in order to be a faithful evangelist. In this passage, we'll get a picture of a faithful evangelist so that we can be a faithful evangelist. If you want to be a faithful evangelist, this message is for you. Now trust that all of us want to be used God mightily. Jude will describe Enoch, give us a template of how he lived so we know how we can be evangelists. So I've divided this into three points. If you have your bulletin, it's listed for you. The prophet, verse 14a, the message, 14b-15, and the sin, verse 16. If you want to be a faithful evangelist, Enoch is a template for us. Let's go at the first point, the prophet, verse 14a. It was also about these men that Enoch and the seventh generation of Adam... We're going to stop there. Notice that this word these men. Jude is talking about the false teachers and that these false teachers during the time when they were... In the church, is the same as the one that Enoch had to deal with. Enoch represented God when most of the world was against God. Not much is known about Enoch. There's only several passages in the Bible that talks about him. Hebrews, if we were to go backwards, Hebrews 11.5 tells us that he had faith in the Lord and he did not die. Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was taken up so he would not see death. Luke 3:37 attributes Enoch as part of the line of the Messiah. First Chronicles one, verse three affirms his existence in a genealogy. But Genesis five is the passage that we, can, that we can look at in terms of the life of Enoch. So let's turn to Genesis five. We will look at the life of Enoch. You know the first four chapters of Genesis. Just by way of summary, the first two chapters of Genesis is the creation of man and all of nature. God created everything and man being the crown jewel of God's creation. Genesis 3 is the fall. It's when sin entered into the world because of Adam and Eve's sin. They were tempted by the serpent and they, and they because of their action, sin entered into the world. Genesis 4 shows us two types of sacrifice, a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord by faith and a sacrifice that's focused on, on unbelief and disobedience to the Lord, and that's Cain and Abel. And Cain was embittered by Abel's sacrifice, and he ended up killing him, the first murder in all of history. And, and Genesis 5 begins with genealogy. It's a genealogy from Adam all the way into Noah. This is really like a bridge... Little summary between what happened before the flood, but it's a it's a good way. It's a good thing that we have this because if we don't have this, we won't we won't get a picture of those faithful prophets. Genesis five is a list of people born after Adam, and if you notice, if you do the math, there's actually overlap between Adam and Enoch. Had to have my wife help me do the math here. It's like, okay, so Adam lived X amount of years, and Enoch lived X amount of years. What were the overlap between? And if you look at the map, in terms of like a timeline, they have, they overlap 308 years. That is to say that at one point in history, for at least 308 years, Adam and Enoch lived together Instead that they both existed at the same time. Why is this significant? Well, I believe aside from Christ, Adam was a man that had a tremendous amount of sorrow. Jesus was known as a man of sorrow because he had to take the, the weight of the sin of the world onto himself. He bear the wrath of God onto himself. But I think the second person, I would argue, is Adam. Because imagine Adam. He was in paradise. He walked with the Lord. He was casted out. And every single one after all of his descendants, he saw the sin. He saw all of the murder. He saw all the things that were going bad. And he was reminded every single day that the world was not like this. I imagine he warned and and tried to share with others a life before the fall. I imagine him telling people about this this era where there was all peace, where work was not hard, where there was no pain in childbirth, that flowers did not have thorns. And I imagine as he talked about these things, the thing that he missed the most about paradise is walking with God that was the thing that struck him the most because he knows what it's like to walk with God at one point and then not. He knows what it's like to be separated from him. The paradise that once that he talked about seemed like an imagination. And I would imagine only a few people believed and one of these people is Enoch. Now how do I know that? Look at Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch was one of the few people that actually listened to God. Enoch was one of the few people that believed in God and one of the few people that walked with God faithfully. This word walked with God is the same language when Adam was in the garden and walked with God. There's a unique relationship between Enoch and God. Enoch was faithful to God. And there's a contrast as well between Adam walking with God and Enoch walking with God. Adam's existence began in the garden, walking with God, but he died outside of the garden. Enoch's existence began outside of the garden, but he ended up walking with God forever. Adam started his life in the garden, walking with God, but died outside of the garden. And Enoch started his life outside of the garden, outside of paradise, but ended up walking with God forever Enoch saw the wickedness of the world and the path that the world was on, and he chose to follow the narrow path that was pleasing to the Lord. Enoch's faithfulness was walking with God, which allowed him to not face death, but God took him up. You'll notice also that of, of all the list, all the people that listed in Genesis 5, Enoch actually lived the shortest amount. He lived relative to everyone else a short amount of time. Enoch's time on earth was exponentially shorter. But why did he, of all people, leave the earth sooner than the wicked? Why was he the one taken before the rest? And I would imagine that if he was useful, if he was faithful, he should be on the earth longer so that he can go and declare judgment and salvation. Sometimes the most faithful people receive their greatest reward sooner than others. Sometimes the reward for faithfulness means that you're able to leave this broken world and be with Christ forever and be with Christ sooner. That's what happened with Enoch. His reward for faithfulness is that he can dwell with God and walk with God forever. It is a human and natural response when we hear about young Christians that died at a young age We'll think they've gone too soon or they went before their time. Yet, but yet we know there's these faithful pastors like Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon that have died at a relatively young age. Missionaries that we know have died ex, uh, at a young age that are all over the world. They get killed, they get slaughtered for their faith. And I'm not saying that every young Christian that dies, died because they are faithful. But I am saying that if a young Christian dies, there is a, there's rejoice in it. We can praise the Lord that this person finished well. For most of us, our spiritual life is like a marathon. But for some, it's just a sprint. And we can praise the Lord and be thankful that these people who lived a short life lived it for the glory of God. Enoch was the seventh generation, two generations from Noah. This world was broken, and Enoch warned them of judgment. This was a broken world, so bad that when God looked at the world, he regretted creating them. Yet Enoch preserved, persevered in walking, In proclaiming the truth of God. Enoch seems to be alone. Scripture often describes the faithful as a small group of people. Enoch was one of the few evangelists or prophets in a generation that's filled with corruption. Now, if you want to be a faithful evangelist, you have to understand first and foremost that it is a lonely job. There aren't that many people that are going to share the gospel the way that we do. If you just count us in this room, if you just count this church as a whole and even all of the other faithful churches in the San Francisco area, in relative to to San Francisco, we are a vocal minority in an echo chamber of sin. There aren't that many of us, and that's great, that's fine. If you ever feel like you're a lone evangelist, whether you're at work or at home or your neighborhood or wherever, if you ever feel alone, you're in good company. We have a truth that transcends time And although we are a minority, we must see it as a privilege to be heralds of God's word and be considered worthy to carry the gospel out at this time, in this era, and in this city. Not only can we learn about how to be a faithful evangelist by looking at the life of the prophets, but we can also learn how to be a better evangelist on the message that the prophet preached. Our second point, the message. Verse 14b-15. to Enoch prophesied saying, I should turn back to Jude, Jude 14. Enoch prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Notice this word, behold. This is a warning. He's telling them to pay attention, listen up, eyes up here. These false teachers and their behaviors and their doctrine that it was alluded to, these are all referenced in the last in, the, in all things that he said, that these are reserved for darkness. These false teachers, they are reserved for darkness. The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. He's proclaiming judgments. He's warning people that the way, he's warning, he's Jews warning people the way that Enoch warned people in the past. And that's how we need to warn people as well. There's an urgency that comes with it. There's always a consistent theme throughout Scripture of people declaring God's judgment. God's judgment is coming for all sinners, and it's coming for those who are living without Christ, and who die without Christ. This message does not change. The Lord will return with his holy angels, and God will use these holy angels as a means to evoke his judgment. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be the the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Second Thessalonians 1, 6-7. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with an affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to give us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is an anticipation of judgment. Notice that this word, came. This word came here, it's an aorist tense. Enoch is speaking as if it already happened. Enoch not only fully believed in the existence of God, he did not just believe back then that there was a such a thing as a paradise, but he's also believing that in the future, judgment has, already, that judgment has already come. He has full trust in every aspect of God and all of history. Enoch speaks without any hesitation, without doubt, and without uncertainty. All that Enoch knows about will come to pass. He he was such a great evangelist and prophet because he trusted fully in God's word. He trusted God's word completely. Enoch believed in every aspect of God. I wonder how many of us are like that when it comes to speaking God's word. Do we have the same clarity of God's word the way Enoch does? Do we have the same coherency of God's character and his judgment the way Enoch does. If we do, if we have, if we believe without any doubt that God's word will come to pass, we will preach and teach God's word with boldness and vigor. There shouldn't be any hesitation when we talk about God's word if we truly believe that it will happen. If whatever God says, it settles it. And we believe it wholeheartedly. I had a, friend, I had a friendly discussion with a one of my homosexual friends, about the LGBTQ. And this debate revolved around whether or not the Bible is relevant to our time. That's really the heart of his argument. He said that the Bible does not, did not talk about gender identity and sexual identity the way that we talk about it now. And the implication of that is that the Bible is outdated. And I remember asking, do you think that the eternal God did not know that this day was going to be? Did he, did you, do you actually think that the God who created everything, whose words spoke into existence and whose words are recorded in Scripture is somehow void in our modern day, that he somehow did not know that this was going to happen? God's standard and definition of holiness doesn't change. That means that if Enoch was to come forward in time to this present day, he would be able to preach the same message and it should result in the same way. Now I wonder if, if we were transported back in time to Enoch's time, and we were to share the gospel, would it be the same gospel message? See, there are a lot of people in our modern day that think that the gospel is 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 what it, it's God's blessing in your life. That God has a purpose, a purpose plan for you that's going to be filled with joy and happiness without Christ. That's how the world modern Christianity is. If we were to go back in time, we need to also teach God's judgment as well as His salvation. All truth is truth for all time. And Enoch, for all the time that he was on earth, never compromised and declared judgment, and so should we. Look at verse 15. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The reason for God's judgment. It's explained in this text. The reason why God is going to judge them is because of their ungodly deeds and all of the ungodly things that they do. God will destroy them for their sin because their entire being is ungodly. God will convict all of their sins. And Jews are referring to all the non-believers that are living in sin. Sin is both passive and active. All sinners, including us before, we were saved by God from God. we were saved from our active sin and as well as our passive sins. These false teachers are ungodly and they reject God with all of the fiber of their mind and of their body. They reject God wholeheartedly. They reject God's might and power while they should be praising and honoring Him. What is devastating is that for the unbeliever, there's no sin that's erased. For the unbeliever, there's no sin that God forgets. And for the unbeliever, there's no sin that God that's blotted out from the eyes of God. Without Christ, without his loving work on the cross, God sees every single one of your sins. In our day, our, in our day and in our culture, we're really selective about what is sin and what is considered wrong, what is culturally unacceptable. And it changes with the season. What once was evil is now good, and what once was good is now an abomination, is never consistent. Certain lifestyles that was once accepted are now rejected, and vice versa. In the world, their morals change. But when the Bible talks about holiness, it is always in relative to who God is. When the Bible talks about sin, it is always also relative to who God is. Ungodliness is basically another word for sin. And sin means to miss the mark. It means to not hit the target. It means to fail to strike at the intended spot. An example of missing the mark is found in this obscure text in Judges 20, verse 16. In Judges 20, it refers to these 700 left-handed men, these 700 left-handed men that were able to swing a rock and hit a strand of hair. Can you imagine that if I swung the rock and hit a hair from the other side of the room? That's, that's amazing. That's, that seems like an impossible feat. But these people in the time of the judges were amazing marksmen. This word miss here is also described what is needed and expected if a person attempts to achieve perfect holiness. They must have a perfect aim and land on this target perfectly. The seemingly impossible task of swinging a rock, hitting the hair, and splitting it is the same word and imagery of sinners attempting to try to achieve perfection it is impossible god's holiness is impossible to fulfill any shot of god's anything short of god's holiness anything short of god's perfection is ungodliness there are no sins or ungodliness that god permits there are no sins that god tolerates god is holier than you think and we are wicked we're more wicked than we would like to admit doctrine and moral goes hand in hand If one disregards God's holiness, you can expect them to live an ungodly life. This is the message that Enoch had for his generation, and it's the same one that Jude had when he wrote this letter, and it's also the same message that we have for our generation as well. The message that we preach must have have the message of failure to live up to God's standard. There is none that's good. No matter how much good things you've achieved in this life, we've all failed to achieve God's perfect standard. God looks into our own heart and soul, and he sees the wickedness. But yet it is only by his grace that we're able to be in a right relationship with him. We can be saved by grace because God has given us his holiness. This is the idea of doctrine of imputation, that before we were saved, we were spiritually bankrupt, and God gave us into put holiness into our account that he made us righteous so that we can stand before him. God's moral law shows us how bankrupt we are. God has given us his law so we could prick our conscience, show us where we have fallen. It is to warn us that without Christ, there's no way that we could stand before this holy God. And our gospel presentation must have sin and judgment. But the reason why it's there is to the contrast the love of God. We can see how wicked we are and the more wicked we see we are and how, how sinful we truly are, the more we will appreciate the love of God. The more sweeter the gospel will be. Due to saying that what Enoch has said and, what, and is what we must say, that no one can escape God's wrath outside of believing in Christ Jesus. Judgment is not reserved for those who believe in Christ. If you are living an ungodly life, you must turn from that sin. You must see yourself as falling short of God's perfect standard. And the only way that you can come to saving faith is through Jesus Christ. He gives you the faith so you can be made right with God. And when you understand your own wickedness, you can see how great and how beautiful God's love is for you. The more you understand how far you are from God's holy standard, the more you'll understand how, how much it took for God to bridge the gap between you and him. And if you are living an ungodly life now, I would encourage you to turn and place your faith in Jesus because judgment is coming for you. If you want to be a faithful evangelist, you must use the law to highlight the depravity of man so that the sweetness of God will be made more clear. Not only can we be faithful Evangelists by looking at Enoch's life but also, and also his message, but lastly, the sinners that you will be dealing with. Jude wants us not only to see a quick bio of Enoch or the message that Enoch preached, but also the people and the sinners that he had to deal with. Our last point, verse 16, the sin. Notice that these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Again, this word, these, appear again. is to refer back to these false teachers, and also a parallel to the people that Enoch had to deal with when he was on the earth. Jude expands and highlights another facet of these false teachers and their wickedness. Jude elaborates more on the attributes of these sinners. Jude describes their personality and the sin that they hold to. Notice the word grumblers. This word means murmuring. This word is onomatopoeia. and the Greek, word the word grumble sounds like the noise it makes. It sounds like the word sizzle. It sounds like the noise it makes. It's always have something, these people that are grumbling always have something that they do not like. These false teachers then and now, now are not only champions of grumbling, but they also promote grumbling within the church. The idea of grumbling shows up in the Old Testament multiple times, and it's always alluded to Israel's grumbling against God. Nothing, was ever sat, nothing ever went well for the Israelites. No matter how much God provided for them, no matter how many, God, how many times God protected them, no matter how many times the Lord blessed them, they always grumbled, they always complained. They were never satisfied with what God has given them. And when they were momentarily satisfied, they would find something else to complain about. Grumblers still exist in the church today. These people are are grumblers when they focus on their own needs. It's like the false teachers earlier on when they say about caring about themselves. These false teachers, they're always grumbling because they care about themselves. they always focus on their own needs. They focus on what they want, and they expect everyone to pander to them. And when they don't get what they want, they grumble. Now, before we attempt to be a faithful evangelist to grumblers, we have to look at our own lives as well. These false teachers always complain about everything. And my question is do you complain? Do you grumble? At the heart of all grumbling is idolatry, is wanting people to worship you, is wanting everything your way. Those are the words finding fault. Is always not satisfied with God and what God has placed in their life, it's nitpicking. Grumbling is a general term, a general attitude. But fault finding is is, is finding every little detail to complain about. There's people that would be like, oh, we want carpet in our church, but I don't want it to be blue. Or we want preachers, but we don't want that preacher. Or we want this type, we want to sing in our church, but not that type of song. These are people that are always nitpicking. They're always wanting, and they're never satisfied. Israel found fault in all of God's blessings. They said that we wanted food, and we didn't get the type of food, and when they got the food, they complained that too much food, and then when they didn't have food, they complained about food again. They're always finding ways to complain. There's always something that they find fault in. Both grumblers and fault-finders do this because they ultimately feel that they're entitled. They feel that they deserve more than they actually have. They, these false teachers, then and now, are never joyful people, but they're always critical of everything. And when people find fault, they're really finding fault in God and his plans because they assume better. Looking again at our own lives, do we find ourselves nitpicking and fault-finding in everything? Do we complain about every little thing? Do we nitpick in each other's lives? Do we nitpick at things at work, at home, or at school, or even in the church. Do we find ourselves doing these things? Those next ones, following after their own desires. These people seek what they love the most. This is the word, desires generally used to describe sexual sin, but in reality, it's just a neutral word. What makes it a sinful desire is the object that it's desiring after. These false teachers, the thing that they desire most is their own flesh, what they want it. Judah is showcasing that these false teachers are striving to live after their own will instead of God's will. These people are are always, they, they look at God's word. They see the clarity of God's word. They see what they're supposed to be, and they say, no, I don't want that. I want my own way. I don't care about what God's word has to say. Again, are we like this? Do we find ourselves constantly trying to to do things that are pleasing to ourselves instead of pleasing to the Lord. What our greatest desires are. That's what we will dwell on most. That's what we will focus on most. If you're focusing on sin, your life will be filled with sin. If you're focused on the Lord, it will show as well. It will it will appear outwardly as well. Notice that these people speak arrogantly. It means they speak highly of themselves. They they, they look at themselves, they think, think, oh, how great they are, all of their success, all of their abilities. They speak assuming that they know all things. Jude refers to them as false teachers that that try to sway people due to their own pride. Ask yourself, do you do this as well? Do you speak highly of your own success? When you're in the church, do you only minister people by the title that you're given? You said, you have to submit to me because I have been in this church for X amount of time or I've been in this church longer than you or that I have certain degrees. And that's how false religion began. Right? That's how the Jehovah Witness began. They say, oh, well, we can read the Greek and you don't. So we have this interpretation described that you don't even know about. That's how all false religion began. And if we speak arrogantly about ourselves, we can easily become false teachers. It doesn't matter what type of credentials you have. Because you understand that those credentials are given to you by God. They're given to you as a stewardship. You need to be humble about it. Do you speak highly of yourselves? And why do people do that? Why do they speak highly about it? Why do they always boast about their credentials? It's so that they can control others, so they can ultimately have things according to their standards. Notice the last one. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. This ties everything together. They want to speak even if it's a lie, to gain something in return. Flattery is something that you say to their face that you'll never say behind their back. Gossip is something that you'll say behind their back that you'll never say in front of their face. Flattery is like if you look at them and they say, oh, I, I love the way that you preach, but then behind them you never say that. Gossip is saying something behind their back, usually a negative term, something that you say in the negative that you'll never say to their face. And these false teachers did this to obtain something. And it's often for their own selfish gain. It's for their own flesh. You'll notice as we're walking through this text, that went through what they are and what we need to fight against, what these false teachers are and what we need to be mindful of. And that's intentional. Because if we want to be a strong evangelist, not only do we need to confront these type of people, but we need to make sure that in our own lives that that these attributes are not there. When non-Christians hear us grumble about life, they will not believe when we say that you can only be satisfied in Christ alone. Why would they? If we talk about, oh, you could be satisfied in Christ, but we're grumbling about life, then we're not really satisfied in Christ. How can we objectively say that we find our greatest joy in life if we grumble about life as if our joy depended on it? How can we tell people to find God to be the most desirable person if our lives, if in our lives we show that we desire something more than God? How can we tell people to be humble before God if we speak arrogantly about our own success? How can we expect people to believe when we say to them that Christ is the best for you when they know that we're flattering them? If, we have a, if we're defined by speaking a lie just to get something in return people will not take the gospel presentation seriously because they think that you're only sharing the gospel with them to get something in return. The less you are of these attributes, the greater and more effective you will be in gospel ministry. If you are any of these things, as a Christian, put them off. Put these things off and put on Christ. Put off grumbling and put on thankfulness. Put off finding fault and put on encouragement. Put off following after your own lust and put on selflessness. Put off speaking arrogantly and put on humility. Put off flattering people and, and put on speaking truth. Put off the old self and put on Christ. If you are faithful in your walk, your gospel effectiveness, your gospel presentation will be more effective and more real in the sight of non-Christians. They will see that God is actually real, that God can actually change your life. They can see that your life demonstrates what the Bible teaches. These are the type of sinners that we will be confronting, but these are all the sins that in our life that we need to be mindful of so that we can be an effective evangelist. You want to be an effective evangelist? This is how you do it. You want to fight sin in your life and, sh- and then share the gospel with them so, so that people will know that God is real and can tr- change you, that you can, not, that you can no longer find joy in the world, but only in Him. Jude Shares with us that if you want to be a faithful evangelist, Enoch is a, is a is a perfect example. of That it's a great example. He's someone that faithfully declared God's word in time when there's no one willing to do so. He was walking with God when everyone's running from him. Yet the message that he told that Enoch preached, either the, the message was on judgment, that you if you want to turn from if you don't turn from your sin, God's judgment is reserved for you. And and he also explains the people that he had to deal with, that Enoch had to deal with, that Jude dealt with, and that what we have to deal with today, and also what we need to be. We don't want to be people that are grumbling. We don't want to be people that are fault-finding. We don't want people following after our own lust or speak arrogantly or flattering. We don't want to be these things because Christ should be the forefront of who we are, not just who we are on the outside, but who we are on the inside as well. If you want to be a strong evangelist, Enoch gives us a perfect example of moral faithfulness. Jude uses Enoch to show his life as a life of faithfulness, a powerful preacher confronting sin while being in the midst of a broken and crooked world. That's my encouragement for this morning, that if we want to be evangelists, and I trust all of us wants to be, we want to be used by God mightily, we want to be like Enoch, who would faithfully declared God's word, walking with the Lord, and, and finding and, and, and mortifying his own sin so he could be effective instruments of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word, and to look at the life of Enoch. Uh, but Lord, we know that you have used Enoch because of his obedience to you. And we want to be obedient to you, and we want to be able to be used by you mightily so that people around us can truly know who you are. Your truth has never changed because you're a God that doesn't change. We want to be a people that are, cons- are consistent with your truth. The gospel is a message that we want to proclaim to the ends of the earth, and we long for the day where everyone from every tribe and every tongue will praise you for, who- for how good of a God you are. You are worthy, and may we speak of your worthiness to everyone that we encounter. Thank you for your word, for its consistency and its unchanging gospel message. In your son's name I pray, amen.